If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the very first Gospel, the very first chapter in that Gospel, Matthew 1, verse 18. Children, I've been saving something for you, and this is something you can use with your favorite uncle or aunt or cousin this week. Okay, so listen carefully. Uh, I've got some information about snowmen that you may find helpful. Okay, what do snowmen like to do on the weekend? Chill out. Where do snowmen keep their money? In a snowbank. How do snowmen get around? On icicles. What do snowmen eat for breakfast? Snowflakes. Somebody said frosty in the last service, and that was, that was sad. Are you ready for Christmas? You know, the normal things that come to mind when we pose a question like that have to do with preparations. Have, have I set up my decorations? And surely by now you have. Do you have all of your shopping done? Have you wrapped your gifts? Have you done all of your baking and your preparations at your house for, for guests? This week I had the opportunity to visit with six classrooms of kids in the schools and talk to them about uh, the Christmas story. I got to read the Christmas story in those classrooms. It's always a privilege for me and the rest of the staff to get to do that each year. We don't take that lightly. But um, those kids are ready for Christmas. I tell you what, I asked them what their favorite part of Christmas is, and you can guess what was number one. <laughs> Christmas Day, opening the presents. And then their second most favorite thing that I heard was eating. And so there it is, opening presents and eating. And uh, so I don't know what you plan for the meal, but you better be ready. I told them that I brought with me when I shared with them my oldest Christmas gift that I still have in my possession. All my other gifts are gone, but I still have these Christmas socks. These do not wear out. Now the holes are worn out in the heels just a little bit, but I am not ready for Christmas until I put on my Christmas socks. Does anybody have a special Christmas socks like that? Okay, I'm weird. Um, but they've lasted. They're nearly 40 years old. But you and I know that being ready for Christmas is much more than the physical preparations and the presents that we exchange. It's a celebration of his birth. And as we talked about last week, it's not only just the fact of his birth, but it's recognition of the mission associated with his birth. That he was on a mission coming into this world on a rescue mission for you and me. And those of us that know Christ, we get to be part of that mission, participants in that mission. And so Christmas holds great meaning for us. Now, unfortunately, maintaining a sense of mission this time of year can be really difficult. I shared with the senior adults a couple weeks ago that when I came to know Christ, I had had, there, was, there had been so much focus in my mind, in my life, on Christmas as getting stuff and getting things and all the trappings of Christmas that I really wasn't interested in that for a long, long time. And so when my wife and I married, she loves to decorate. She loves to bake. She loves to get into all that stuff. And I just, you know, really wasn't into it. It took a while before my, my heart shifted because 
maintaining a sense of mission this time of year, this week, can be really hard to do when you're interacting with a lot of people and you got lots of activity going on and people going in and out and you're traveling and you're going from place to place. But listen, it is also probably this week one of your greatest opportunities to impact someone for Christ. There are people that we see at Christmas that we rarely see at any other time. There are people that you will see this week, some of you that you've had a falling out with years ago or maybe months ago or weeks ago, and they're difficult people to deal with. Others of us, you're looking at children, you're looking at teenagers, children or grandchildren, and they're growing up way too fast, and you're wanting everything to just kind of slow down. I used to tell my kids, don't you have a pause button somewhere that I can push and just kind of slow all of that down? And then there's people that we barely know. Total strangers that you and I encounter at the grocery store, the clerks and banks and checkout lines and, and uh, the gas station, the pumps, and just all these different strangers that we run into. But this time of year, perhaps more than any other, we speak to strangers, don't we? We smile at them. We say Merry Christmas. Don't we? We should. And we encounter all of these different kinds of people in the New Testament Though the man that we're going to read about today, Joseph, he illustrates for us the kind of person that God can use to change someone at Christmas time. His characteristics, his qualities are things that you and I can not just imitate, but that we can actually embrace and make a part of our life. There are around us so many folks, sometimes even in the midst of a crowd, they're there and they're experiencing loneliness. Or maybe they don't have a family gathering to go to, but they're lonely. There's others who are sick this time of year. I can't think of a, a crummier time of year to be sick, but we have people who are sick even this morning. We have people who are anxious or worried about something, others who are grieving, and this is their first Christmas without someone who is precious to them, someone that they love. Others are out of work. They're looking for jobs. Others, while all of us are celebrating family things, are having marriage difficulty or family tensions or family difficulties. And so we're surrounded with people with needs. We definitely have the opportunity to impact someone for Christ. God wants to use you to change lives. And this week is one of your great opportunities to do that. What can you do to be ready this Christmas to change lives? First, choose a merciful spirit. Choose a merciful spirit. Look at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. How would you have reacted? Your fiancé has been with someone else. In that day and time, engagements were arranged by parents on behalf of their children. A typical engagement lasted about a year as a groom essentially made preparations 
to start a new home, a new household with his bride. And because there was a real investment associated with those preparations, there was often a legal binding contract that was understood as part of the engagement process. And for all intents and purposes, legally, those, that man and that woman were bound together, and they were considered legally already husband and wife, although nothing would happen until after the wedding as far as their relationship. And so they had this engagement that was a legally binding contract, and Mary had done something that appeared to be utterly shameful and disgraceful. And Joseph learns about it, and he is dealing with this and thinking about it, and he's going through a couple of options according to the text. He's not wanting to expose her to public proceedings. There was a legal, public way to deal with her apparent immorality. Now, they didn't stone people as often anymore. It could still happen, but the Romans did not let them execute capital punishment anymore, so they weren't going to stone her for her apparent immorality, but there could still be a very ugly, public, embarrassing, shameful proceeding. And he opted more for a quiet divorce. The words put away in the New Testament are code language for divorce. And and so he's going to take this legally binding contract and bring it to an end. And it only took two witnesses to do that quietly. Is there someone in your world, as you think this morning, that has wounded you and you have a broken relationship with that person and I don't know how it's affecting you this morning but at this time of year you may be more apt to see that person and it may be one of the few times you ever see them and you don't want to speak to them you'd rather just avoid them and you know you and I have a tendency to manage broken relationships that way And we have a tendency to look at blame and we look at guilt and we tend to try to balance the two out. If a broken relationship is a canvas that we paint on, we have two big paint colors that we deal with, one called guilt and one called blame. And our tendency is to put a little bit of the guilt color on the canvas of the broken relationship. But from our perspective, we mostly put the blame color on the canvas, don't we? Mostly blame. I have this broken relationship with this person and it's 80% their fault or it's 60% their fault or 70% their fault and I color the canvas mostly with blame. And the truth is the scripture comes at you and me and tells us that we are responsible to deal with our guilt. I can't control what that other person did but if I am responsible in any way, shape, fashion or form for the brokenness of the relationship, God has called me to reconcile to the best of my ability. And so there we are in the face of Christmas time. We have this opportunity to impact someone's life by simply setting down our blame paintbrush and picking up our guilt paintbrush. And I hope I got the guilt can, yes. And then we go and we try to make it right to the best of our ability. And you and I know we don't live in a perfect world. Some people won't receive that. Some people won't respond to that. That's okay. Have I made the effort? Choosing a merciful spirit, however, For Joseph at this moment was a very different kind of scenario. I mean, Pastor, what about a situation where I really haven't done anything and they are totally 100% to blame for the brokenness of our relationship? And that happens. I mean, we see it play out in the newspaper sometimes when someone has, as a drunk driver, kills someone's family member or something and 
and the family has to deal with blame that they place on that person for what happened. And how do you process that? How do you deal with that blame? What do you do? You can just take that canvas and you can keep taking the blame paintbrush and you can keep painting it and painting it. But what does Joseph do? He chooses a merciful spirit. He chooses to pursue in a situation where he is not at fault. He did not create this situation. It is not his fault that he's in this position with Mary. But he chooses to do no harm to Mary. None. He chose to handle the matter quietly, and he displays a merciful spirit. And so the mercy, when I talk about choosing a merciful spirit, the mercy you and I are to show is not based on who they are. It's based on who you are. And what kind of person are you? Choose a merciful spirit. What can you do to be ready this Christmas to change lives? Choosing mercy. There's a second thing you and I can do. Maintain a sensitive conscience. Maintain a sensitive conscience. Look at verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so he's thinking The angel comes while he's sleeping in a dream and speaks to him, and now he understands the full truth about Mary. She has not been unfaithful. And the child is of the Holy Spirit. And as he he thinks about this and he has this dream, the angel speaks to him. He begins to realize that this child is not of human origin, and that a miracle has taken place, and that He is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God, this baby. And the angel says to him, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This child is of the Holy Spirit. What was he afraid of? I remember several years ago reading this passage of Scripture during one of my times alone with God, and, and I read that Scripture, and I saw that phrase, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And I thought, what was he afraid of? Was he afraid of Mary? I don't think so. He loved Mary. His tenderness towards her is obvious. He, he cares for her greatly, so I don't believe he was afraid of Mary. Is he afraid of what people will think about him? Because she has become pregnant before their wedding? Is he concerned about what other people will think? Well, no, he didn't have to be because he could have handled it in a public proceeding. He could have been totally absolved of all guilt and all the whispers would never be about him. He could have handled it that way. What is he afraid of? I don't think he's afraid of any of those things. He is most afraid of offending God at this moment. He wants to do the right thing. Mary is having a baby and the baby is not his. And so this baby, who is not his, is some other man's baby, and she obviously has a heart for some other man, and this baby, as far as he knows, up before the dream, as far as he knows, this baby is a product of Mary's love and heart for someone else. You say, well, why would Joseph experience fear at that moment? Because if he loves her, 
in uh, Leviticus 21, in fact, in verse 7, if you were a priest, you were a person who stood between the people and, and God in the Old Testament. And the qualifications for a priest were extremely high. And, and if you were a priest in the Old Testament, you could never marry a woman who had been a prostitute or who had been defiled with another man. I mean, the bar was set really, really high. And Joseph, I believe with all my heart, was a godly man who wanted to please the Lord with his whole life. And in his mind, taking Mary to be his wife at this point after what had happened would not honor God and would not please God. So what does God do? He sends an angel, divine intervention. And he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He's clearly torn between his love for Mary and his desire to honor God. But he has maintained a sensitive conscience. And when God speaks, his ultimate desire is to please the Lord. And God has spoken. When you and I maintain a conscience like that, people see it and it affects them. God may touch your mind, your heart this week to pick up the phone and call someone that needs ministry. He may lead you to actually get in your car on Christmas Eve or maybe even Christmas Day and go drive and see someone who is having a very different kind of Christmas than you are just to visit with them and to encourage them, to minister to them. There are people he wants you to serve, a need he may prompt you to meet, and your sensitivity and arriving at the moment that God has arranged may transform or change someone else's life. This morning when I was sharing this, what came to mind was, was an example of a ministry that goes really outside the walls and outside the bounds of what, what we normally think of. You know, we've got a group of women in our church that on Tuesdays go and visit inmates in the local jail. Uh, women inmates. And these ladies get together and they pray before they go and then they go and they visit and they minister the love of God to these women. And in fact, they want to involve more women. They're going to have a training time that we'll, we'll tell you about in January where more women can be involved. But this ministry has grown and, and they are touching lives. I don't know if they're going this particular Tuesday because I don't know if, what the schedules are and that sort of thing. But my point is this. They're going to people who are going to have a very different kind of Christmas than you and I are going to have. And, and when people are in that kind of circumstance, they're in a jail or a hospital bed or they're, they're in, in crisis or they're worried or their marriage is in trouble, their family's in trouble, you know what? You have the most awesome opportunity at that point to impact their life by bringing to them the love and the presence of Christ in your own heart. They're more receptive to what you have to say at that moment than at any other moment in their life. What can you do to be ready this Christmas to change lives? Choose a merciful spirit. Secondly, maintain a sensitive conscience to what God wants and what pleases him. And then thirdly, adopt a teachable attitude. Adopt a teachable attitude. Look again at verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and this is a quote from Isaiah 9, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The words from the angel were stunning. So much truth, so much information was coming all at once to Joseph. In a few phrases, Joseph hears the truth. The angel calls Joseph a son of David. And he's pointing out Joseph's earthly lineage. And Mary has a genealogy too, and she has an earthly lineage. Both of them are descended from David. But when he refers to the child, he refers to the one who's going to be born of the Holy Spirit. And all kinds of things had to be going off in Joseph's mind as he realizes this child is different. This child is special. His name will be Jesus. And it means the Lord saves because his mission in life will be to rescue the people of God from their own sins. But the most stunning thing of all that the angel says to Joseph at this moment is, Joseph, take her as your wife. Go ahead with it. Do it. Up to this moment, Joseph, and I admire him for this, Joseph has been developing a well-reasoned biblical decision. And many of our decisions, your decisions and mine, are, are made this way. What does the Bible say? What would please the Lord? And we look at the Scripture, and we think about it, and we reflect on it, and, and we listen, and we pray, and we ask for insight. And at some point along the way, we reach a conclusion. This is what Joseph is doing. He's reaching a conclusion before the dream that, no, I'm not going to put her through a legal proceeding. I'm not going to embarrass her. I'm going to do no harm to her. We're going to just do this thing quietly. She loves someone else. She cares about someone else. I'm going to put her away quietly. And so he's reaching a very, I think, biblical and godly, uh, well-conceived decision. And he's wondering if there are any other options, which is really cool. He's got a direction he's leaning in. He's wondering if there's any options. He's praying about it. He goes to sleep, and this angel appears, and, and everything changes. And what I see happening to Joseph at this point is he's open, wide open to new information. He really is open to other options. Lord, as best I understand, this is what you want me to do. But then God speaks to him, and it's okay. He's open to new information. He's ready to revise his thinking. As he contemplates the best course to take, he is teachable. And his whole attitude is, Lord, speak to me. I'm going to do whatever it is that you tell me to do. Joseph is easily redirected by God. You know what? The older you and I get, and I'm, I'm in my 50s, and some of you are there and beyond. The older that we get, it is so difficult to maintain that because we have experiences we have life experiences where God has spoken to us in the past we've been we have done things well we have done some things not so well we have made mistakes we've done some good some not so good and over the course of that we have amassed this body of experience this this insight into the scripture from the past all of this understanding that, that you and I have carried up into this present moment and somebody comes to us and they're trying to make a decision and they say what do you think and it's so easy for you and me at that moment to bring all of that 
that library of experiences and information to bear in that decision and say, well, I think you ought to do X, Y, Z. And, and, and Joseph illustrates the best way to approach that decision. Well, yeah, I've got these experiences, I've got these ideas, I've got these thoughts. But God, what do you think? Goes to bed. Wakes up the next day. And he knows what God wants. It's totally different than anything he imagined, could ever have imagined or dreamed. But God's spoken to him, and he knows God has spoken. And he's teachable. And he says yes. You know, when people see you live that way, when people see you depending on God's direction, depending on him to give you insight into what you ought to do, that there's probably nothing that more dramatically reveals the presence of God to people who watch you than the way you make decisions. And this week, I don't know if you'll have that opportunity or not, but, but when someone comes to you and you're asking questions and you're listening and at the end of the conversation you say, you know, why don't we just pray about that? Why don't we just pray about it? And you get down with that person, you pray with them, and they hear you cry out to God for insight and for information. And you talk to them, and the whole way that you handle that conversation is a testimony. And it's your teachable attitude that makes a difference. Well, finally, what can you do to be ready this Christmas to change lives? A merciful spirit, a sensitive conscience, a teachable attitude. But then, number four, offer a decisive obedience. Offer a decisive obedience. Look at verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. No waiting, no hesitation. He just did it. Took him to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name just like the angel said, Jesus. <laughs> you know, there was a real cost to this decision. You know, people aren't stupid. They can do the math. <laughs> you know, and people knew she was going to have a baby. I mean, word had gotten out. The, the, it, it was apparent to people. And she was going to endure disgrace for the rest of her life because of it. People are going to talk about her. They're going to insinuate things about her, her character. They're going to say things about her. As late as John chapter 8, verse 41, during a theological debate, the Pharisees said to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. Even as an adult male, this is being thrown in Jesus' face, the questions about his parentage. And he could have left Mary alone. Joseph could have just let her be. She could have endured that disgrace. He did not have to experience that. But when he makes the decision to take her for his wife, he enters into her disgrace. And the things that they were saying about her, now they're saying about both of them. That he was unfaithful during their engagement period. Just like her, they were not people of good character. My point is this, following Jesus is costly. People suffer when they make decisions like this. 
They suffered community whispers as people who did not understand the whole story or did not believe the story that was being told. You know how people do. They fill in the gaps with their own version of the story. And so who knows what kinds of things were said about Mary and about Joseph because they were simply being obedient to God. It may be in your workplace. It may be in your school. It may be in your family. It may even be in your church that when you choose to obey him, people will not understand the rationale or the basis of your decision, and they will try to fill in the gaps with their own version of the story. Joseph awakened with a set of instructions from God. For Joseph, it was a defining moment. We talked about that in November. For him, it was a moment on which the whole course of his life would have been set. He could have walked away from Mary or he could walk the rest of his life with Mary. It was a defining moment. And without hesitation, without even a word, with no further deliberation, he gets up the next morning. I know what God wants me to do. It is decisive obedience. No hesitation. And again, I can't describe to you the impact that has on people who know you, the people closest to you, family members who know you, friends who know you, when they see you arrive at a conclusion regarding the will of God and you get up and you do it without hesitation. Joseph is a model for us on how to change lives at Christmas time. Choose a merciful spirit. Maintain a sensitive conscience. Adopt a teachable attitude. Offer a decisive obedience. Armed with these four qualities, you and I this week, this week, not not the week after, this week, we can impact some people and change lives. I want to close by reading verse 23 again. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. John Wesley grew up in a large family. I've told you stories before about his mom, Susanna. She was a godly lady. She prayed for her kids, all of them. She had a bunch. But in the little home where they lived, they had no place where she could go to be alone with God. And so in order to do it, she would sit in a corner in a rocking chair and she would take her apron and throw it over her head. And the kids knew that when mama's apron was over her head, she was talking to God and to leave her alone. And apparently they did. And so John Wesley grew up in that kind of environment where he had a godly influence, his mom praying for him. But he still didn't know the Lord when he became a young adult. He was concerned about the things of God, but he understood that, that the way to serve God is by doing a bunch of things for God, apart from God's strength, apart from God's direction, apart from his power, apart from his salvation. He was very much works-oriented. He goes to Georgia at one point in his, his young adult life to start a ministry there, and and he's successful in a, in a human sense. And then he gets on board ship to go back home, and the storm comes up. And it looks like they're not going to make it, and he's scared to death. I don't know if you've ever been frightened to the point that the, 
the monster of fear was closing in on your heart, a great big dark monster. But that's what he was experiencing it. And he describes it in those terms. Meanwhile, on board ship, he noticed two young men who were absolutely calm and at peace. They were Moravian missionaries. They had something he didn't. He talks to them. They share with him. He goes back to England. He begins seeking, searching. He wants what those guys had. And finally, he comes to a place where he comes to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Not because of the things that he has done, his contributions, his good works, all his efforts to save himself, but because he abandoned all of that. And he throws himself on Jesus and his mercy to save him. And it changed his life. He became one of the great evangelists of the 18th century. The Methodist church that he helped found, he did not intend to start. He just wanted to start revival in the Church of England. But they wouldn't have anything to do with it, so he was forced outside the buildings. He had to go preach in the fields, and thousands and thousands of people came to Christ through his outdoor preaching. He preached up and down the east coast of North America with a good friend, George Whitfield. And as they preached up and down the east coast, Scholars estimate that some 20% of the population came to know Christ. It was an amazing period of time from 1740 to 1742. Scholars call it the first great awakening. As, as he got older, he starts the Methodist church. He, he has a class system, which is really a discipleship system, where people grow in Christ. And that is his desire, is not people only that they come to be saved or become a church member, but they become real, live followers of Christ, leaning on Him, experiencing Him the way He saw those Moravian missionaries experience Christ. Now, someone like that, when they come to the end of their life, it's worth knowing the last words that they spoke. And the last words that Wesley spoke were these. The best of all is... God is with us. That was it. All the other things he could have talked about, I don't know how many thousands of sermons he preached. He said, the best of all is this, God with us. Christian, what a privilege you and I have this week to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to change lives and you and I get to join in his mission of changing lives. We get to be a part of that. And I hope that this morning you would just re-up. When we have our time of response that you would just take a few moments in your heart and say, Lord, whoever, whenever, whatever this week, sign me up. And I hope you'll do that. If you're here this morning, uh, you may be all caught up in the trappings of Christmas. You like the decorations, the lights, and the trees. You've got your gifts ready. They're wrapped. And as far as you're, you know, you're ready for Christmas. But listen, you're not if you don't know Christ. You're not ready. And the whole world celebrates Christmas the way that you're doing it. And I understand what you're doing, and, and I'm excited that you do it. I mean, I saw this week an article where in Shanghai, in the mall, they got Christmas trees and Christmas lights up. <laughs> And uh, you can go to Southeast Asia, they got Christmas trees and Christmas lights set up. You can go to Dubai, <laughs> you know, a Muslim country. You can go to Dubai and they got Christmas trees in the malls, pretty ones set up, and they got Christmas carols playing. <laughs>
The whole world knows how to celebrate Christmas, but not the whole world. They don't all know Christ. And do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? The whole purpose of his coming, God with us. He wants to not only be with you, but Jesus taught in his ministry that the way he wants to be with you is to literally indwell you through his Holy Spirit. When a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside. For some, that may be a very dramatic experience or encounter with God. For others, it's a very quiet thing as he comes in and moves in and sets up shop. And what he does with a person, when they come to know Christ, and this is true of every Christian here, as he is on this mission to be with us, to change us, to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You are not put on this earth just to make the best of it. You were not put on this earth to do the best that you could or to try your best. You are put on this earth for his purposes. He made you for himself. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. And the reason things don't go so hot for you The reason the wheels are coming off of your life and there's so much difficulty and so many challenges that you're experiencing is because you do not know the purpose that God has for you. And everything you and I try to do for God tends to blow up in our face and we just make it worse. We make it worse and no matter how much good I do, I still got a pile of mistakes and sin and things that I've done. I've messed up. Now, Christians have problems, Christians have difficulties, and Christians mess up too. We're learning, we're growing, but what we have that you don't have is that God is with us. He's teaching us, he's growing us, he's using all the bad stuff that happens for our good. And So God made you this time of year, he came into this world on a rescue mission for you. And so the greatest problem that you have right now in knowing him and being intimate with him and and walking with him is the problem of sin in your life. And it is separating you from a relationship with God. You say, well, how do I get rid of it, Pastor? I try to be good. I still mess up. and, And it seems like all I do makes things worse. How do I deal with that? Well, you can't deal with that. You can't. And that's the the message of the gospel is that God accomplishes for you what you cannot do for yourself. You can't contribute one bit to your own salvation. Nothing, nothing you can do. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift he accomplished for you when as a mature man he dies on the cross. And the Bible says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He didn't die for sin in general, just sin for the whole world and that sort of thing so that everybody can go to heaven. He didn't do that. He died for sins, specific individual sins. And every single sin in your life, past, present, and even future, when you put your trust in Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ covers those sins and washes them away. And now he can look at you as clean, as pure, As family, he brings you to himself as a son or as a daughter. And you have to receive that gift. And you receive the gift through repentance and faith. Repentance, the basic idea is is turning, 
your whole mindset turning. And repentance is turning from a life without God and turning to a life with God. That's the simplest way I can put it. It's not just being sorry for what you've done. It's literally turning away from what you've done, saying all I can do without God is mess up. With God, I have hope. And it's turning to him, turning to him with all your mind, all your heart, turning. And faith is kind of the flip side of that. Faith is putting your trust or reliance on him to save you, that you can't save yourself. You can't do anything to save yourself. So I have to rest completely on him. And this morning, if you would like to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The prayer I'm going to pray is not a magic formula. The words themselves may vary in your own mind. They can be different. What matters is your heart and is your prayer coming from your heart to God. And so I offer these phrases just as a help to you as you pray and call on him. But a prayer of salvation. Father, I realized this morning that in coming here up to this moment in my life, everything I've done, I've done for myself and I've done in my own strength. And Lord, my efforts to be good have failed. My efforts to have meaning to my life have failed. And my efforts to try to figure out what life is about and what makes life good has failed. And Lord, right now I turn away from my life without you. And I'm turning to you. With all that I am, with all that I know that is me, I turn to you. And I'm looking to you. And I'm looking to a life with you. I need you. And I ask you to forgive me for my sins as I put my trust right now, Lord, in your son, Jesus Christ, and his death for me on the cross. And because of what he did, I'm trusting you to save me, to forgive me and wash me clean, and to change me from this day forward. Thank you for hearing my cry. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer from the heart, Paul writes in Romans 10 that whosoever, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The very best thing that you can do now is share that decision that trust you've placed in Christ, to share it with someone. We want to give you an opportunity right now. We would love for you to come and share with us that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.